This is Control Structure, episode 99 for January 13th, 2016. Big year to everyone listening. This show has notes. Visit thenexus.tv slash cs99 to see them. And with that said, I am your host, Andrew Bailey. And with me uh, today, and as usually, my other host, Stephen Orvis. Hi. Hi. Um, my kitchen smells like potpourri. So you've told me, but I am getting over a cold and I cannot smell it. Yeah, you might want to speak up into the Microsoft. Is this better? I think it might be. So if you could just stay there for most of the show, we'd be great. I'll just stay over here, hunched <laughs> over the Microsoft for the rest of the show. Or maybe pull up your chair. That can work too. <laughs> Stand by for chair pull-up. <laughs> so, um, yeah... Uh, so as mentioned, a new year happened. Uh, it did. Did you do anything exciting? I think I was taking a shower when the new year happened. What about you? Wow, um, that's impressive. Um, I think I might have been watching the ball drop in between uh, bouts of Fallout 4. So, uh, yeah. I'm trying, I'll speak in very vague terms. Uh, the journey is better than the destination for Fallout 4, uh, but it is still, the ending to it is still a lot better than Mass Effect 3. So, uh, yeah. The game seemed to challenge every choice I made, which I did not expect that, and uh, I actually, in terms of a story, I kind of like that. So, uh, yeah. Uh, but uh, earlier on New Year's Eve, I was over at uh, Pastor's house, and if you recall uh, me talking about my grill... Yes, I do remember your yes, grill. Yes, I assembled that and actually started using it. Very nice. What did you make? Uh, well, I sort of made, like, legendary burgers, I guess I'm calling them. Uh, I pretty much put in, uh, let's see, a little bit of sriracha, some oregano, garlic, and, uh, like, actual chopped up onions, like, right in the meat. Like, mix it all up and... Uh, I think I might have put a little too much garlic, but uh, everyone there really liked them. So, uh, yeah. Uh, and then, uh, let's see, it'll be this Sunday afternoon, I will be uh, holding another cookout there. There you go. So, uh, you know, I would want to say weather permitting, but, you know, hopefully it's, like, so cold that it'll be snowing or clear if it's not. So cold is snowing, so you, you want to have the snow if... It's going to be cold. Well, if it's going to be precipitating, I'd rather have it be snow, obviously. But, I see. But, uh, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I need to get going on that stuff. But, uh, yeah, it seems to be off to a good start, considering my, uh, uh, like my tater tot casserole. So did that turn out good? Uh, actually, yes. So, um, you know, I'm, I was, you know, mixing it up there. And, uh, you know, after I realized that, you know, sriracha goes good with uh, sour cream, uh, you know, I mix it all in there. And, uh, like, before I put put the, uh, like, the sauce and stuff onto the tater tots, uh-huh. I realized that I made a very good chip dip. I see. Which I even, uh, you know, pretty much explained this all on my blog. But, uh, uh, so, it ended up being a little bit hotter than I expected. But I brought it in anyway, and then I realized that, like, everyone in the office goes through a bottle of hot sauce about every week. It ended up being the best thing there. <laughs> Consensus was. 
That's funny. Yeah. So uh, that was, uh, yeah, pretty tasty. So, and as, uh, you know, I guess I'll call that Feliz Navidad, since, uh, you know, it was kind of hot and it was Christmas. Ah, there you go. So then uh, last, I think it was Saturday, maybe Friday or something, uh, I watched uh, lots of videos about transmissions for some reason. Like car transmissions. So you uh, have one you're planning to work on then? No. Just for fun yeah. to, to learn? Yeah. You know, like, I've I've heard that, you know, there's like a direct mechanical connection between your engine and the wheels at all times. But I think that's a whole bunch of crap because, you know, half the time you're driving a car, it seems like half the time you're idling at a stoplight. Your wheels aren't moving, but your engine is. And if there's a direct connection between them, uh, that's not going to happen. So I'm trying to think the definition of direct connection, because even like in a standard, you have like when you gas it, you can feel the gears engaging, and then you let off on the gas, you can feel like an in-between, and then it, it kicks and your your en- slow engine is actually slowing the wheels down, with the in-between place between the accelerating the wheels and slowing the, the uh, wheels down by the engine. Like, it's, like, slopped in the gears. I'm not sure if that would be considered a direct connection at that point or not. Oh. But, uh, yeah. There is a whole bunch of fluid involved. But... It would be. But, uh, you know, in a very interesting way. But not exactly how I thought it would be. So, uh, now for this week's LOL Intel. (laughs) You might have heard a little bit of news on the uh, Intel Skywell CPUs, or uh, I guess they're called Skylake. I guess we've been talking several years about something well or another. So, uh, apparently, uh, if you're doing very complex workloads and, like, kind of heavy workloads, um, turns out that Skylake CPUs can crash. So uh, uh, apparently this was discovered while using Prime 95 to find Marsen Primes. I think Marsen Primes are like 2 to the N minus 1. Uh, but the uh, apparently it just goes ahead and like resets the, uh, the CPU. So you need to like do a power cycle. And uh, like there's a few... Uh, like, I'm not exactly sure if they nailed down the exact cause, but I think it has something to do with hyper-threading. Uh, but meanwhile, it, it apparently can be fixed with a, uh, a BIOS update, which is pretty good. So was, I found that kind of interesting. I was reading the article. It talked about how previously there used to be, like, with the, the Pentium processor, the original one, it yeah. says the FDIV bug, which apparently was, like, a hardware problem altogether that they had to recall. Then it went on to talk about another bug that had happened, but they were able to use a code update to disable that specific problem. And then this one was a code update too. So I was thinking, it sounds kind of like uh, Intel has figured out ways to use software to solve problems opposed to always having to make a hardware change. Hey, using software to solve problems, that's like what everyone does. It is like what everyone does. Um, so... Uh... 
uh, let's see. This is Intel has had problems with their chipsets also. So um, this was yes. now. Wow, it's 2016. My CPU is now five years old that I'm using in my desktop. And by that, also my server is likely that old too, since due to accidents, you know, I had to replace them at the same time. But uh, like pretty much two or three weeks after I got my Sandy Bridge processor, it came out that the chipsets used uh, like the SATA controller, uh, like some gate had like too much voltage mm. in that in about three years, it would start to totally fail and corrupt yes. your drives and stuff. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, you know, wouldn't you know it, you know, got my new system and already it has to get recalled. And uh, like it took about two or so months in order for replacements to like actually get out so they could actually tell you to send your stuff back. And that caused me to miss the release of Portal 2 by about five days. Because you had to send yours back. Yes, because I did not have a motherboard at the very moment it came out. (laughs) Thankfully, I was able to preload it, though. There you go. So then after all that was done, uh, I was really looking forward to not messing with my system for a few months. (laughs) I can see that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, hey, speaking about messing with systems, and back to Skylake again. Um, so the, uh, like, Intel CPUs nowadays have, like, they're essentially, like, on a little small board with, uh, like, pin contacts on one side and a huge metal block on the other. Uh, so that little board apparently is quite a bit thinner with, uh, Skylake. So much thinner that, uh... It apparently can bend easy. So, you know, this is suspected that, uh, like, even though the heatsink specifications stayed exactly the same uh, from Skylake compared to the previous, like, Haswell and even several before it, like, the heatsink pressure and weights and stuff all stayed the same. But it appears that some third party manufacturers uh, for their coolers may have exceeded those slightly, uh, but Skylake is apparently not as tolerant of them. So it appears that, yes, you technically can bolt these on uh, to Skylakes, you just can't move the system afterwards. It must be like the flopping around puts pressure on it. Yeah, so, you know, it just kind of moves it around there. So like the corners, because this apparently happened to... Uh, I think it was actually someone at Maximum PC. They were borrowing uh, PC Gamer's uh, Skylake CPU that, uh, like, one of the corners actually noticeably bent here. Wow. So uh, that definitely looks like uh, critical damage to the processor. Yeah. That's a lot of bend there. Yeah. So uh, today is a sort of important day. Uh, because today is the last day that Microsoft will be supporting, uh, how should I say this, uh, versions of Internet Explorer that are not the latest released for that version. So, in other words, for Windows 7, 8, and I think 10, the latest will be Internet Explorer 11, uh, whereas uh, for Windows Vista, it'll only be 9. And I think like for the server versions, like, it's kind of like crazy or something, but, uh, yeah. So, you know, the idea is, you know, to get people to upgrade, 
Um, and soon, like, apparently you mentioned, or at least you found, like, a patch, like a nag patch or something. A nag patch? Yeah, that's, you know, it's just a patch to, you know, that will throw a dialogue oh, box. Oh, nag patch. I was trying to come up with some technical jargon for <laughs> nag. I was like, hmm, nag, can't think of it. Okay, yes, 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 nag patch. Yes, apparently Microsoft, if you're running Vista, or actually not even just Vista, some operating system that doesn't have the latest version of IE, it will actually update and then provide you with a window or something saying, hey, you haven't updated IE, you should do that. So, and for the last stragglers that may still be using Vista somewhere, it will be supported until April of next year. So, unfortunately, they... uh, Apparently, like you mentioned something about Windows 10, like initially, initially the offer was even going back to Vista that they could upgrade to Windows 10. That was originally way back when it was going to be Vista 2, but apparently before they ever released Windows 10 uh, to the public, they had made that change and uh, did not allow Vista, which I I feel, I feel like, uh, like with XP, when they ended support for XP, like, XP more or less felt done. 98, when they ended support for 98, it felt more or less done. Like, my family still has a Vista computer at home, and it doesn't feel like an out-of-date operating system just yet. Like Really? Yeah, we do. On one of our older systems, we don't use it. Well, actually, we use it as a TV computer. Yeah, so actually, we do use it quite a bit from that perspective, for YouTube and such. But, it, like, it functions. You can install modern software on it. Uh, like with the case of 98 or ME or XP, if you try to install some games and things, they're not going to install anymore. Whereas Vista actually is still the same class. It feels like it uh, doesn't feel like it should be that old. Yeah, and that's sort of the same trap I fell into with the 20th century right there. But uh, apparently there is a uh, kernel patch for Windows 98 that will uh, allow you to use Unicode. Uh, which allows like a whole bunch of newer software to be used. So, um, so was it a Microsoft patch, or did some guy just pack it together? I, I'm not sure. It might be open source. Okay, but yeah. So I guess the uh, the bottom line is goodbye, Internet Explorer. And also in other news, Windows 8 would no longer be receiving updates as well uh, on this day. Uh, However, 8.1 will all still be supported. Obviously. So, yes. So apparently to update it, instead of going to the update center, you would go to the store and for free purchase Windows 8.1, apparently. So, uh, yeah, that was interesting that Microsoft uh, decided to do away with it. Must be there recognizing that nobody liked the stupid home screen thingy that <laughs> didn't have a start menu. Or, no, a desktop without a start button yeah well it boots into this home screen thing it makes you feel like not on your computer but on a mobile device (laughs) so uh yeah along with uh security uh purposes uh you know there will be a lots of uh uh, let's see like right now uh since you know mentioned about the uh tls 1.0 and the uh, pci compliance from last time yes that, uh, you know, hopefully this will nudge people into using browsers that will have uh, TLS 1.2 enabled by default. Um, so, you know, granted, if it's not, you know, PCI compliance, you know, Microsoft's doing something about it, which is good. 
But uh, on the other end, uh, there might be OpenSSL powering that TLS connection, and uh, it got a boost recently. So uh, apparently it was back in December at some point, the Dutch government promised that they would start spending a lot of money on security software. So apparently they have now donated half a million euro to the OpenSSL project. So this is, uh, uh, you know, how should I say, good windfall for them. I'm not exactly sure where OpenSSL is based, but uh, I think it has something to do with, uh, like, it's one of the BSD projects or something, which I think might be from uh, the Netherlands. Okay, so they're actually kind of a home-ish uh not um, companies the wrong word uh, organization yeah Maybe that's the right word yeah uh, for the dutch government that's interesting so so you know unlike uh say the united states government and the uh, uk government uh the dutch government says that encryption is a good thing and that we must use it and you know things like the paris bombings you know those will always happen no matter what uh which you know is kind of true because if you have the ability to spy on everything, you have this huge haystack which to find a needle that may or may not exist. It, it is true. And just even thinking back, I, I was thinking back uh, years back, you got like Revolutionary War, obviously no computers, still with secret messages. I read a, this is a really interesting spy book, no idea the name of the book. Anyways, apparently this guy was supposed to deliver a secret message. So they wrote it on a piece of paper and somehow cast it inside of the lead of a round ball. And so the idea was, if he got captured, you swallow the round ball. <laughs> that way they don't get the message. So, yeah. And, you know, again, about the Revolutionary War, you know, the Constitution was written, like, what, 15 years afterwards? Like, 13 years afterwards? I'm not sure the exact date, but it was a while after. Yeah. Right. So, you know, these people, the people who wrote it, you know, been through a lot. And, uh, you know, they realized that even at the time, like there was like the world's largest, most powerful army trampling through their backyard. And what did they say? They said freedom of speech. They did not say national security. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, yeah, just, just something to, you know, keep in mind. So, uh, moving on here, uh, we had some point in the past, we mentioned a Postgres uh, getting the upsert feature. So, uh, uh, Postgres 9.5 has been released uh, with a few other features. So, you know, upsert is, you know, the, uh, you know, if this doesn't, if this data does not exist in the table, you know, insert a row, and if it does, update it. Um so apparently there's a few more uh, sorting methods that are apparently faster than, uh, uh, let's see, abbreviated keys. Uh, so make some queries which need to sort large amounts of data anywhere from twice as fast to 12 times faster and can speed up index creation by 20 times. Uh, so And then again, expansion of uh, foreign data wrappers, which uh, like even in previous versions they've had uh, some features to, you know, like get data in from somewhere else, like something that's not even like nothing that something that you wouldn't even think of it, think of as a database. Like some of these Postgres uh, data wrappers can, uh, you know, like actually 
you know, present a table interface to that. So meaning you can plug this wrapper around something and then like talk to it as if it was the database. Yeah, like tweets. Tweets. Off, off of Twitter. I see. Interesting. Yeah. That has, like, a lot of uses. Yeah. Um, and then uh, Brin indexing, which uh, apparently, you know, speeds up, uh, you know, how should I say, whatever you use index for, indexes for, which yeah. is generally selecting things. Now, this one, it says it uh, uh, effective index, but effective index for very large and naturally ordered tables. I'm trying to figure that out. Does that mean, like, it's a sequential count of some type? So, like, you have data that's incrementing or something. That's what it sounds like. So it can be indexed in search in 5% of the time required by standard B tree indexes. So I wonder if it's some sort of a chain chain linked index or something? Not sure. guess it's something to research. So, uh, you know what we've always said, you know, Google is going to cancel, you know, like, uh, a whole bunch of projects. And apparently they might be able to do that with search because it has peaked and it is not going back up. So, you know, it was sometime back in 2013 that uh, it looked like uh, it was peak Google search. But uh, since then it's been gone, going down. So, uh, yeah, looks like uh, Google might have to be doing something else. It seems like Google has been kind of trying to hide it gets to be the feeling. I was just reading their article. I suppose it kind of mentioned it. And this one it says about it... Uh, Oh, yeah, there it says Google doesn't regularly disclose the number of search queries that its users conduct. It has more than $100 billion per month for a while. So it's like they were just reporting. I was like, we have just more than this, but they don't exactly want to say. Yeah. Fun interesting in here is said that more than half of searches, like in the United States and many other countries, actually come from a mobile device. Yeah, presumably because of, okay, Google... Uh, or because, you know, people make a whole bunch of typing mistakes. Whoa, see, now that's, that's interesting. Yeah. That's true, you type something, and it's like, oh, how do I spell that? Just type that quick. You know, it's, it's kind of like, you know, for uh, ad revenue in some places, you know, it's so good on mobile. It's like, well, yeah, because they're trying to press the link that's right next to the ad. Ha! <laughs> ha! It's like, <laughs> we just make the link buzz over on top of the link you're trying to click, then whoop! Click the ad. So, um, yeah, I'm not sure what they're going to be doing after this. I mean, there's Android, sure, but, uh, I mean, they they tried to do Glass, which is something that a whole bunch of people got excited over, and then you've never heard anything from yes. it ever again. So it, it is saying that the YouTube is a big for Google, and the online video market is very huge right now. You think about Netflix and stuff. I don't think the market's done moving. Uh, it's... It feels like there's still space for it to move and such, so that seems like a big thing. It's showing like a graph of the Google's growth of their quarterly income and uh, revenue, rather, and it's actually got growing. So that appears that it's not a big deal for Google. Yeah. So, well, good for them. I guess so. <laughs> So, uh, last time, we uh, talked about Juniper routers and how, uh, I think it was just two of them had some vulnerability in them. Uh, turn, turns out that it revolves around the dual EC uh, random number generator, which I believe we've mentioned before in the context of the NSA leaks, 
uh, because you know this is apparently a standard that's flawed from the beginning. Uh, so it was mentioned in the context of the uh, NSA Bull Run program that was helpfully leaked by Mr. Snowden. Thank you, Snowden. Um, that uh, so Juniper apparently integrated this into their routers, uh, but knowing the security concerns around it, meant to uh, use it as input to some other uh, you know random generator. But apparently, in this case, there is a an instance where it could be where the second step could be bypassed, allowing the uh, flawed uh, you know dual EC output to be used directly. So, and apparently, Juniper is getting all sorts of cagey about kind of specific questions of like, why did you even put it put dual EC in there to begin with? Um, but apparently. Uh, they have since, you know, realized, you know, not only decided to, you know, fix the issue, they've also decided to pull out dual EC and the other algorithm, that second step algorithm, out of their uh, uh, Junos OS products altogether. So what is interesting is the uh, dual EC, it was talking about how the government sometimes... Uh, would require that algorithm to be used in its products it bought. And I think earlier in the article it talked about the government buying routers and such from Juniper. Uh, so that maybe might be a reason if they're like, hey, you must comply to our standard, use our standard and we'll buy your stuff. Maybe that could be a reason why they have it. There's whole there's a whole bunch of rules surrounding like government acquisition contracts and stuff. Uh, but uh, like I think mostly the things around dual EC was that like these products have dual EC capability, not necessarily that it uses them in anything or by default. Uh, like it's merely just an option pretty much. Uh, similar to how Microsoft uh, put this into Windows, but it was not the default for anything. Which when I was reading the article about that, it was interesting we're saying it could, in a sense, there be a sneaky backdoor attack because now suddenly you can switch Windows over to use that by flipping one bit someplace. So suddenly, poof, it's using it. Isn't that handy? We didn't change that bit. It's just a bit corrupted itself. <laughs> what about the other seven bits? So, uh... So, uh, let's get to the meat of this podcast. So, uh, the AMP project, which AMP stands for Accelerated Mobile Pages, is a standard that launched a little while ago, backed by mostly Google. It's supposed to be a standard for fast-loading web pages uh, for mobile devices, apparently. I guess Google didn't get the memo that simpler pages load faster, too, and there's no need to bolt on nonsense tags to literally everything. So, uh, I guess, looking at this, the very first thing I noticed was uh, that... Well, okay, maybe not the first thing. Okay, the, the interesting thing is this is actually a subset of HTML, so it is kind of-ish normal HTML. But then the odd thing you notice is, is that I can't it isn't. Actually, yeah, it isn't, because I can't actually type it with my keyboard, because uh, you have to do this funny lightning bolt symbol, uh, which apparently also can be supplemented by the word amp after H the HTML tag. So, 
yeah, anyways, uh, there's, there's a few weird things going on here. You know, granted, you know, it's supposed to be, you know, responsive and all those buzzwords. Uh, but apparently it replaces a few of the tags and prohibits quite a few tags, which most of them no one was using anyway. I got the feeling that it's it's just trying to filter out all of the dangerous tags or tags that could be dangerous to use performance-wise, and they're just like, nah, if, if we don't give it to you, you don't need it. So, like, it places quite a bit of restrictions around JavaScript, which is odd, uh, because, you know, there's a whole bunch of JavaScript that's mixed in with this uh, so-called standard. So image, video, audio, and iframe tags have been replaced with, like, their own AMP-prefixed versions. Uh, But the thing that I really have a problem with is that the form tag and the input tag are forbidden. They're prohibited. They're not supposed to be used, which kind of makes me wonder, what is this good for? So from just, like, a performance standpoint, thinking about it, like, what do you do with a form? You, you know, you submit stuff to a server do they not want you submitting data to a server through the form tags Were the form tags inherently slow I, I hadn't thought they were slow yeah um it's it's kind of weird and like i'm not exactly familiar with this but you know if it if these tags were replaced it, they would probably say so like what they did with yes, the image tags they would say so i think so you know um so they do a few things with the images. Like apparently they just like dynamically rescale things on the server, which is really neat that they do that. They make it fit the device that it needs. Yeah, but uh, you know, just it just seems like an over-engineered solution to me in some in some ways. It seems like someone got the idea and they they went a little bit overboard, making it too specialized of a solution. I think. It's, it's got a place in the world, but it's not going to be a big place. Yeah, so, you know, without forms, you know, this is essentially restricted to websites that just give information. And, I mean, so, you know, things like, you know, like a company homepage, like public-facing page or something, you know, you know something that, you know, just there to read stuff. And then I thought, well, maybe uh, news articles, uh, sure. but then, like, what about comment sections? I mean, I mean, granted, you know, there's no forms or anything, but an iframe is allowed, apparently. Uh, would the iframe uh, page also need to be uh, AMP compliant? That's a good question, because you can stick anything in there if it's not. Yeah. So, yeah, there's a few questions around here, uh, and I'm not going anywhere near here. <laughs> it seemed like their goal was to get, they kept talking about consistent load time. And it seems like they're almost trying to be so restrictive and tying you down towards that goal of being super, super consistent. One thing they did that was really interesting that, uh, like, from a web browser perspective, might be a neat thing to do globally was, I guess the web browser can apparently ask how big an image is before it downloads the image. And then it, I don't know if it's making choices based on that or something. Yeah, that's... That's apparently in with the uh, like the image tags. So like I'm not sure if these width and height attributes are required. I see in this one tag here it says uh, I has a add 
Yeah, apparently the there's data data size. Oh no, that's the pixel size. Never mind. Yes. Yeah, so apparently, you know, ads have their own custom tags. Oh, that'll make it easy for me to filter out ads with my <laughs> uh, ad blocker software, huh? <laughs> <laughs> that's handy. Yeah, totally. So, meanwhile, you uh, you uh, was were kind of interested in this uh, meta viewport tag. Yes. Uh, apparently, you say it allows the. Uh, scaling on a mobile device and so I asked if that has to do with the CSS. I've seen CSS before where it somehow asks like were you this or are you that? If so give this other layout in that example. So uh, well my website is uh, you know responsive and all that so uh, how should I say this? Like the thing of it is is that the layout needs to change whenever your uh, window or screen gets smaller. So, you know, you can see like, you know, pretty much, you know, two columns here and it's quite wide size, but if I, you know, resize the window, oh, the side column goes away. Yes. See that? So, and also, you know, see this image here? Mm -hmm. Like it also resizes oh, with nice the column. scaling with it. So is that uh, image, what, one of the PNG images? So it makes it scalable? Um, no, it's it's just the browser resizing oh, the, the image. Resizing yeah. it. So it's stretching to fit. Okay. Yeah. Um, or compressing to fit rather. So uh, you know, some like pretty much all the magic happens in the uh, CSS file. Uh, well, the viewport actually tells uh, it has something to do with the fact that uh, like CSS pixels do not necessarily have to represent pixels on a screen. I see. So if I say that this is the width of 900 pixels, suddenly on a device that is only 30 wide, doesn't have to be exactly 900. Yeah. Okay. So, let's see. Because, like, on a... I think on the mobile device, like a CSS pixel, uh, like, might actually cover a few device pixels, I think they're called. So, uh, like, it's, like, measured a little bit differently. And that's pretty much what the viewport does. Um, so, so it's basically saying it can scale. I see an initial scale, so it's saying it's, like, starts at 1. So, so, so uh, uh, instead of, uh, you know, instead of making things look really tiny, you know, like, actually, you know, use the conventions of the screen itself to, you know, measure things or something like that. It's kind of complicated. But, uh, so looking at my CSS... Can we, uh, do you have Notepad++ or something so we can see the syntax highlighting? Uh, yes. In fact, awesome. I, in fact, I was uh, actually looking or playing around with my CSS just the other day. So, uh, all right. So you can see my uh, fancy dancy reset up the top. Which you know sets you know the margin patter padding border stuff you know to you know be you know all zero and whatnot. So you threw away all the defaults and said I'm going to define everything for myself. Uh, pretty much, that's what a reset kind of does. So like the first part of my CSS goes through defines fonts and sizes and you know spacing and whatnot stuff that's good for pretty much anything. And then I define the uh, screen media type, which puts in uh, like colors uh, to fonts and you know backgrounds and stuff. I'm seeing you defining some sizes there in the EM. Now, my understanding the EM that's a sizable 
size type, but since you did the other one, you could have said pixels there and it would have worked out the same way. Is that no. true? No. So the thing about EM is it's based upon the relative size of the font. Oh, and it's basing that based on what the font was. Yes. Okay, that's what it was. Okay. So, you know, essentially if you jack up the font size, like, lots of spacing and stuff will, uh, you know, follow suit. Okay. Uh, so then I come down to media screen and minimum width 901 pixels. So this is the, uh, like, the large uh, screen size. Yes. So, you know, then it defines, you know, essentially, you know, the two columns. And then media screen and max width 900 pixels. So this is the one column layout. Okay, uh, so this is saying if you go underneath the 900 and, yeah, yeah 900 pixels, suddenly it's just going to be this layout opposed to the other one, which is for that range there, the 901 to 1186, it's going to use this layout. Well, if you can see, there's also a body tag there for the max width. Okay. So that, you know, essentially restricts so it. doesn't oversize past yeah, that. so, mm-hmm. like, if I go really wide to even more really wide, it, you know, pretty much stays centered. It just puts white space around it. Or blue space in your case. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, uh, you know, two columns, then one column, and then I have a media print. For the printer, yep. Yep. So, and, you know, that's that's not based upon the screen that falls back to the, uh, like, the top part of the CSS, which, you know, declares the fonts and the sizes and the spacing. So, you know, I have it, you know, sort of, I don't want to say object-oriented, but there's definitely some cascading and inheritance mm-hmm. going on here. So, and then the bottom of my style sheet it's is... fonts. Yes. Which, there's three of them, and that's what makes my... CSS file uh, over 100k, <laughs> which would also put it past the standard for amp. Yes, because that is 50k. Yes, so uh, you know that's you know pretty much a tour of my CSS, and like the 900 pixels, the 901. Mm-hmm. You know that's called a break point. And so, if, as you size this down, when that flips, is going to be that 900 right there. Yeah, so. At first, uh, you know, like I had, you know, min width 900 pixels and then max width 900 pixels. I figured out there needs to be a slight offset because that's inclusive. So what was it choosing when it was at that 900 so, point? So I'm, unfortunately, I don't have that CSS with me right now. Uh, like I got rid of it because it was bad, but... Like there was some spacing on the side for the column, uh-huh. but the column wasn't there it's yet. Gone. Uh, so uh, yeah, like I needed to, you know, like actually fix that. But it was like kind of interesting in that there was a point, there was like a little flash where the second column wasn't there, but the space was. And then you do it a little bit more, and then and oh, the, it pops in there. It's there as space. <laughs> We've been doing some CSS at work lately because we're making. Uh, for a service we're writing, uh, they want to be able to fax uh, the referral coming in as like an alternate way if like services are down or something. And so what we did is we translated the XML into uh, HTML with an XSLT and then made uh, converted it into a PDF through this third-party software library. And so that's been interesting because 
the software library doesn't always interpret CSS the same way Firefox does or some <laughs> other web browser. So I've been playing with floats and things like that. Apparently this one, like normally when you float something and then you can put something underneath it, with this one it like you could have like a say a heading tag and it wasn't like floated and then it would like appear halfway up the page above some other stuff that was floated, but then if you float it then it appears down below where it's supposed to be at. But in Firefox it looked great. It was just in the <laughs> other one. So so you get to do the Internet Explorer hell all over again. See, we didn't try it in IE. That's true, now that you say that. Maybe it behaves the same way in IE, which could be hand... No, see, we were testing, though, within Visual Studio as a built-in web browser, which I assume would probably be IE. Yeah. So actually, we were testing in IE, come to think of it. So, and uh, also, also note that, uh, you know, all of my... Uh, you know. See the padlock thing? Yes. For... Evidently indicating encryption? Yes. So uh, do you remember in Firefox it has like some sort of a device display mode where you can like see device, this Firefox window at certain sizes? Do you remember that? Do you know what's that? Yes. I was um, curious uh, if we... I think it's like Control-Shift-M or something? I think, yes. Yeah, nice. I think you're the one that showed it to me first off. So if we set your width to the exactly 900, uh, we should see the single column layout, right? Yeah. So, uh, 900. And it is single column, so 901. There's a 2. Okay. Oh, nice. Then it comes right in. That's pretty neat. So. What what was the shortcut for that? Controller Shift M? Yes. Okay. I know I've looked for that before, and it's like if you Google, like, Firefox device modes or something mm -hmm. weird like that, like, I have trouble finding it before. That's um, kind of a neat mode, though. So, another thing is that uh, when I got my SSL certificate, that uh, it also, thankfully, supports a uh, thing as subject alternate names. So, what that does, it allows your certificate to be used for multiple domains. Okay. So, I put in theandrewbailey.com www.theandrewbailey.com dub, dub dub yeah w's oh okay i got it uh and content.theandrewbailey.com so okay. so with that i can do a little bit of domain sharding so, so those are all subdomains on your andrew bailey yes it doesn't automatically work for subdomains um not unless you have a wildcard certificate which there's like a few restrictions around that huh but uh, like getting a certificate with uh, subject alternate names is no big deal. Like they're pretty much supported in every browser now. So it's pretty easy to just add in your other domains as you add them on. Yes. That's nice. So uh, as you can see, my CSS is served off of content. Oh, very nice. I see that. Yes. So and, and so the the I was couldn't help but notice the name of your CSS file it was named after your server I presume yes okay um, at least the uh, or the server was named after the CSS file <laughs> no so uh, it long story short it's uh, I got the name off of a, uh, a comedy sketch where they essentially installed Linux on everything around the house Including. and. And the toilet was the file server. I remember seeing that uh, before, I think, you showed yes. it to me. And I watched it a couple of times, too. Yes. And uh, so, initially, the server I had was there for to serve files. Um, and then later, the web server came on later, though. So, that's essentially what I have named my blog engine 
you know, just toilet blog engine. There you go. <laughs> and naturally it has a toilet CSS file along with it. Okay, that would make sense. So, uh, uh, is there any interesting quotes from Spruce? It always has fun ones. Um, it might not be operating right now. Really? Is it uh, down? It might actually be down. So, uh, essentially what I would need is a server reboot at that point. Or at least a web server reboot. Does rather. it uh, just crash sometimes? Or it sometimes if I redeploy, like do a new, you know, push of code, uh-huh. uh, it won't work after uh, you do it. So, so you just need to reboot the server and it starts working again. Pretty much. So, what do you have? Do you have like an? So it's a separate service that the web page calls. I think. Um, no, it's it's essentially a Python interpreter running in the uh, the Java web server. Okay. Uh, so at some point, you know, like again, when you try to go to redeploy it, uh, if it's still live, then it'll like, nope, not going to do it. <laughs> so uh, thankfully, I've you know put in some code that you know will make the web page not freak out when Spruce decides it's not going to work right now. <laughs> it's like, I'm on vacation. So, uh, yeah. Let's see, what else? Um, oh, yeah. Uh, I guess we might be done talking about my blog right now. I, I guess so. We've covered it pretty well. Yeah. So, uh, hey, I mentioned uh, the toilet, like as in the file server toilet. Yes. The original box. I am actually going to be donating that to Goodwill. Pretty soon. Goodwill will get the toilet. Okay. <laughs> um, the toilet. Yes. You know, the legendary toilet after which the blog engine has been named. <laughs> um, uh, the one I got, let's see, the story about that is, uh, remember uh, Utah, Chris? Yes. So uh, when I moved in with him in college... Uh, he just had this thing lying around. It was like kind of falling apart. It didn't work. It didn't really post correctly, I don't think. Um, so I'm like, hey, if I fix that up, could I have it? And he's like, give me the hard drives and you got a deal. So I'm like, okay. So then, you know, I got to work on it and, uh, you know, I got it up and running uh, to a file server. Mm-hmm. And uh, it wasn't for several years that I discovered it was it actually had no CPU. Wait, okay, so you've been running it for a few years now. It's been working, great. File server, awesome file server, fast and everything. And then one day you open up the case, and you look in at the processor, and you're staring at an empty socket. Uh, Or so I thought. So, uh, let's see. It was after I had, you know, uh, upgraded it and replaced it that uh, I decided to give it to mom. And I had, I think one of the original parts I got for it was a uh, third-party CPU cooler. Mm -hmm. But I just, you know, hadn't gotten around the time to replacing it, and it really didn't need to be replaced. Uh, So, you know, I just, like, left it there. So I'm like, okay, well, I'm, you know, sort of, you know, letting this go now. So, you know, let's go ahead and put it on there, because I'm probably not going to have another Socket 939 CPU ever. Probably. So, uh, you know, I opened it up and, uh, you know, trying, you know, I unlatched the heat sink and I'm pulling it and I'm like, this thing isn't coming off. So, like, I just kept on pulling it and it suddenly jerked off 
and there is no CPU in that socket. <laughs> it's been running on nothing. <laughs> yeah, and I, and I've also mentioned this on on this podcast. This is probably like a third or fourth time, but it's a good story. <laughs> <laughs> I, so, I have heard that before. So so I'm like, okay, I'm pretty sure this thing had a CPU in it. I mean, it was an Athlon sixty four. You know, those things just don't you know come out <laughs> of nowhere. And I'm like, well, I didn't you know, hear or see anything fly out onto the floor behind me. And then I looked at the heat sink and no, oh, it's right there. Just glued <laughs> to the thing. Currently the gel was doing its job. Yes. So yeah, fun times. Yes. So, and then let's see. Yeah. Like mom only had that for, I don't know, maybe a year or so. Hi mom. How are you doing? So, uh, anyways, yeah. Nice story about toilet. <laughs> so, uh, in uh, the feats, I've been uh, pulling out an old, old project. Way back when, when I was younger, my family had an could old... You, could you speak into the Microsoft? Yes, I could speak into the Microsoft. That makes a nice big blue lines now. Okay, so uh, way back when, when I was uh, younger, my family used to have an old Atari gaming system. Which had, we had a cartridge for River Raid and a cartridge for Frogger. And this is a 2600 Atari. Mm, it might have been. We could Google what a 2600 looks like and I could tell you. Atari 2600. It is not a 2600. Maybe like a 3 or 4,000. It was something thousand. 78,000? 78,000. Let's see what a 78,000 looks like. It was not a 78,000. It had okay, a well, keyboard keep on, on it. Keep on going. Anyways, probably yes, it had it. a keyboard on it. So anyways, uh, we used it for quite a few years and had a lot of fun with it and enjoyed it a lot. Uh, but uh, eventually the primary game port started to uh, not always work all the time. You had to wiggle it or something to get the game started. And uh, so anyways, one day I decided to take it apart and found out the solder connection was broken. And so I tried fixing it, I kind of fouled, and it wasn't working so good. And so I went ahead and uh, I kind of put it away in, into a box and didn't touch it. That looks like a cool Atari, but that's not the one we had there. That one was really neat. Anyways, uh, we put it away in a box and didn't touch it for years and years and years. The other day at church, I was talking to about to one of my friends about it, and so I decided to dig it out and take a look at it. And... Uh, so we took a look at it, and I found the port on eBay that I need, and I ordered one, and I'm hoping maybe to solder it back on here soon. So yeah, um, so now you have me really interested to figure out which one mine was. <laughs> See, mine, interesting story to mine, uh, apparently my parents went to some state park someplace, and uh, they were giving them out for free if you stayed at the state park. So this is probably the downhill side of Atari, and probably not a very expensive nor famous one. It was, however, the computer that I programmed the very first time on. I had uh, gotten a book out of the library on basic programming, and it had all these neat programs in it. And all you had to do to run the program when you could do was type it in. It was like magic. Atari 800. It, it kind of is like that, but not really. It, but it had the keyboard on it. Or 400, 1200. Oh, oh, there we go. The, the newer XL machines. Uh, Atari 600 XL, that looks a lot like it. Or 800 XL. Mm, it I, like... it could be either one, really. But, yeah, that's that's what it looks like right there, is that type of machine. Okay. Near-death experience. 
<laughs> That's probably about the time when my parents got the free one. <laughs> so apparently Atari still is a company, if it's as near death. How should I say? The the only reference I know of to Atari is like the video game division that's been tossed around through a few companies and kind of isn't Atari right now. It might kind of be more of a name only product yeah, that definitely. kind of exists but not really. Yeah, yeah. Like the like whatever company has it now has it for the name recognition. Because it's just playing a good name, a famous name. Yeah. So uh, I found an article the other day. I was reading about the Atari and stuff. And this one guy apparently found this really old Atari game in his garage that he had bought from way back when at some discount store. So this is back when the game was, like, you know, almost new. He found it in a discount store. And apparently this was, like, a really lame game. He said all of his friends, he used to trade games with them or borrow games. And sometimes games wouldn't come back if they were a good game. The person would just keep them. And apparently this particular game always came back to him because it was just that bad of a game that no one wanted to keep it. And so he found it in his garage and he had like original packaging for it and everything. Apparently he sold it on eBay for like 30 some thousand dollars. So that was, uh, I guess if you have a really bad game. There's only 13 of them, of them in existence, I guess he said, so that was why. <laughs> Probably because it was so bad. Was it? Did it happen? Was it happened to be the uh, ET? Um, what do you mean by ET? Uh, like there was a really crappy uh, Atari game, like for the twenty six hundred. It was called something like Air or something, Air Field or Air. Uh, let me let's think of a Google query here. So something like highest selling Atari game. Game. I cannot spell for some reason. <laughs> That's not how you spell Atari. Uh, so collectible, maybe collectible. Uh, the rarest and most valuable Atari 600 games. That might find something. Yeah. So, because I remember, I think it was like a year or two ago that, like, there has been this sort of urban legend going around that since there was so many copies of uh, ET for the the Atari 2600, that it sort of caused the video game crash of the 80s and. So the rumor was is that uh, they buried all of these in what? in I think it was like uh, was it uh, oh like somewhere in New Mexico, huh. just like buried in a landfill, and so like there's been this persistent rumor, and then like two or three years ago Microsoft funded a documentary that actually went there and had had them dig up. Uh, like all you know where it would be and sure enough there's a whole bunch of et cartridges <laughs> in this landfill so, so they made so many of them and it ended up that they uh they couldn't sell all they of could them. sell them so they just wanted rid of them so they yeah. just trashed plus, them plus uh, along with a whole bunch of other uh cartridges too huh but yeah i, I wonder if they released that for free or something but yeah um like i remember the uh, news articles about that um so, yeah, it was a very interesting thing. So it could be the article I read was an older one. So use price. Uh, see, Oh, Air Raid. That's the one. Air Raid. It was Air Raid. Air Raid, the only game released by men of vision, has been a very distinctive cartridge. This game, you must pre- protect a city from invading alien ships. You know, I've played games that kind of look like that, where, you know, you're, you're, these things are coming down from the sky, and you're, like, shooting at them from the city or something. 
That kind of looks like that a of lot. Of course, of course, you know, with these really old video games, there's more things going on in the box art than in the actual game. <laughs> I know. I've seen the. I've seen the games. They look so exciting, and you're so excited to go play the game, and then you start playing the game, and it's like, huh. I wish I could play the game that was on the cover. <laughs> that was a really fun-looking game. Oh, there's a game we used to play. It was called Great Naval Battles. And on the cover, it has this really awesome picture of, like, this dive bomber diving down on this aircraft carrier. The guns are blazing, and he's dropping bombs. It doesn't actually have gameplay like that. It's actually a map strategy game. It's a fun game, but it doesn't play anything like the cover. Let me see if I can find it. This here, great. It's a really good game, though, actually. Great Naval Battles. Battles number two. I actually spent of all... Yeah, yeah, that, that right there. See, yeah, it, it was the one we looked up on those on that DOS archive. Oh, yes, I do remember that now. And there was actually up there, I think. Yeah. Yes. Or was it like some game 1942 or something? I, I, I probably would have ran to this one because it was a DOS game that I really enjoyed. Of Like all the DOS games way back when I was a kid... This was the top DOS game I played. Like, I, there's another one called Bookie Bookworm. I was a kid, okay? It, it, no judgment. I, I played that one a fair amount, but not really. I played... I think there's some sort of spelling game I might have played a couple of times. This game, though, was awesome, and I played it all the time. Like, we had Windows 3.1, and I would purposefully not boot into Windows 3.1. Instead, I would go to DOS... And type in GMB2, because it was that awesome. Yeah. But yeah, that was the good old days. That game, I used to play Jane's Combat Flight Simulator. I played that a lot. Brewer Road States. Then I pretty much went to Tanks, and that's pretty much been my gaming sense for the well, past five years. So, oh, well, so much nostalgia, so little time. Yes. So uh, if you'd like to uh, give us any feedback on uh, our show or anything other or something that you would like us to talk about, go ahead and submit feedback to uh, Control Structure on the Nexus.tv. And uh, don't forget that today is International Backup Awareness Day, so back up all your stuff. So uh, that reminds me. Um, so it was last Monday that my new work laptop came. So I spent, you know, Tuesday sort of, you know, getting situated. So what I pretty much did was I copied my user's directory uh -huh. from the old laptop and just to like some random folder on the new one. So, you know, that pretty much, you know, transferred over everything that I needed, uh, you know, minus like actual installed programs and such. But, uh, you know, that, you know, after about a week or so, the new laptop smell was wearing off. Uh -huh. And by that, I mean, like, actually had the stuff on it that I needed. That stuff takes a while, because, like, you stupid stuff. Like, you're using it, and then suddenly you realize that file extensions aren't turned on, and that's why <laughs> that file is actually an XML file, but it doesn't look like one. Yeah, but uh, I actually got that pretty fast, so. Um, it does have a solid-state drive in it, so, uh, you know, there hasn't been any suggestion that every laptop from now on in the company will have one of these. Uh, but uh, I also brought in an external hard drive that I got like 10 years ago, uh, you know, to, you know, occasionally back things mm -hmm. up to that and also uh, have my uh, music archive on there. 
uh, and not take up space on the admittedly small oh, 200, 256 gig uh, solid state drive, um, which uh, I actually have an external adapter uh, for uh, like a smaller hard drive that I have around here that's one terabyte. Um, so I'll be using that instead. And I ex- I formatted that external hard drive and uh, pretty much used BitLocker immediately on it, you know, just to see you know what it would do, mm-hmm. and that seemed to work pretty good. And then Friday I pulled the switch and uh, did it on the internal drive also. So yeah, it, I'm running you know supposedly encrypted on my laptop, even though it doesn't ask me for an encryption password when it boots up. Because it uh, uses that uh, trusted platform module or something, it's kind of creepy. <laughs> so is that using your Windows login then to uh, decrypt it? Uh, no, it recognizes that a signed operating system has booted, and okay. oh, here's your encryption keys. I see. So if you try to go and access it from a live CD on Linux, it probably doesn't let you in. Yeah. Okay. That's that's the idea anyway, but. You know, I'm always thinking, you know, like, what if there's uh, some kind of vulnerability that allows you to execute something without being logged in? Yes. Whereas in, like, because the, the, the Windows before it comes up, it gets that trusted key thing from someplace that's unencrypted. Yeah. And so that means theoretically, yeah. Or, or it might just be public key encrypted. It might be. That's true. That could happen. So, but, uh, yeah. Uh, so far, so good, and uh, the only thing bad about it is that it only has one monitor port on it, so I, uh, you know, I can only run one external monitor instead of two so like is, my other. Is it a bigger laptop screen or not really? Uh, it's it has a bigger screen than the other one, being like 17 inches. Okay, that's so. As a, but it seems like my existing laptop ecosystem has optimized around 15 and a half inch, so. But uh, thank goodness it barely slides into the bag I have. So. <laughs> Here you go. Well, uh, enough with me rambling on. Uh, anything else to add? Um, guess, uh, actually I had something. I forget what it was now. Ha! So yeah, we'll drive back. Hope it doesn't snow too bad here. Uh, yeah, because winter decided, winter decided to show up. Did decide to show up. It was like snowing today and everything. This yeah. is the first good snow we've had. So, uh, with that, uh, have a good one. You too.